to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the results of this past weekend's presidential election in Brazil. Also going to be uh, talking about the upcoming election in Israel and going to be discussing some of the recent right wing conferences in the U.S. and how that factors into the far right creep in this country. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Jamal Thomas, co-host of Fault Lines, which you can hear from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on Radio Sputnik. Jamal, thanks so much for joining us. What's going on, man? Doing all right? Everything's cool, man. Everything's cool. And uh, you're on the ground there uh, in Brazil, Jamal, which uh, uh, saw its runoff election yesterday between uh, popular former president uh, Lula da Silva and far right incumbent Jair Bolsonaro. And uh, I I was seeing some reports throughout the days of uh, buses uh, from uh, the Northeast, which is a Lula stronghold being held up by police, uh, although uh, later reports came out that eventually they did make it to the polls and all in all, not to bury the lead, but Lula did uh, uh, emerge as victorious in this election. Uh, there were, you know, uh, large mass demonstrations of people uh, demonstrating uh, in celebration of this in Brazil, also in different parts of the world. But just sort of curious, you know, what you've been seeing, what you've been hearing, uh, just what's your estimation of how things have been developing? It's fascinating, to be honest. You know, Lula won by 50.9%. Bolsonaro ended up with 49.1%. Very close election. And initially, they were expecting like a five-point difference between the two. Not so much. All the way up until the point of, let's say, 60%, you ended up with almost a dead-even race. And I was sitting in the studio watching like, oh, my God, what's happening here? Uh, But Lula eventually pulls it out at the very end. And, of course, they call it the... um, election. Now, the police thing, let's go into that for a bit, because that was fascinating. So throughout the voting on Sunday, the highway police and the federal highway police carried out more than 500 operations, at the very least estimate, right, against public transport, basically inhibiting or outright blocking various voters from going from point A to point B. And this, like you said, was in a Lula um, stronghold. Now, the northeast region of Brazil, mostly per se, but happened in multiple places, but mostly in Louis. Um, Lula stronghold. Now, this is in spite of the Superior Electoral Court prohibiting any such action. People were supposed to be allowed free public transport in order to get from point A to point B for the voting. There were a few places that basically charged people, but that seemed to be more minor. This was more of an issue of the cops. Now, the head of the police force and even Human Rights Watch came out. It says, quote, we're very concerned about the reports of operations by federal highway police that are allegedly preventing or delaying access to polling places for voters who use public transport. Um, and this is, again, against what the Electoral Court basically said. Now, the minister uh, right here. OK, so president of the TSC Superior Electoral Court, Alexand- Alexander de Morales, calls in the director general of the federal highway police. This guy named Savini Vasquez order to immediately stop, basically suspend all of those operations and allow those people to go about their way. Now, Savini came out earlier basically saying, vote Bolsonaro on social media. But 
totally. There's no coincidence between the fact that the cops were basically stopping people from going from point A to point B in order to vote for Lula and this guy going for Bolsonaro. Um, Morales went further. He said that if Silvini, director of the General um, Highway Police, does not comply, he will receive a personal and hourly fine of 100,000 reals, roughly $20,000, and be immediately removed from his duties and arrested for flagrant dereliction, dereliction, disobedience, and electoral crime, according to the journalists from Oglobo. Now, after this, he immediately stopped and allowed people to basically go on their way. And the TC president, the, the electoral court, he basically came out and says, look, this didn't have a consequence. This doesn't have an effect on the election or anything else. Now, of course, if you're on the left, your first thought is, well, wait a minute. Why is this election this close? And did indeed the inhibiting people from going from point A to point B, did they have any effect on the vote total? At this point, that is unclear. Um, Lula won. And so I suppose that that's what people are going to basically be focusing on. Um, you write about the crowds, massive crowds in Sao Paulo at the point where um, Lula won that race. Now, from the standpoint of opposition, Bolsonaro had been saying that he wasn't going to accept the election results for basically a year. I mean, I think he saw the writing on the wall at the point where Lula was out of prison. And so he wasn't going to accept it. Many of the people who were basically on his side were saying similar things. The catch is, though, Bolsonaro hasn't made any comment. He's made no statement at all. He's been completely silent. His supporters and people who basically backed him, many of those people have come out basically saying, Lula is the president, we accept the results, etc., like grudgingly accepting the fact that Lula won. In addition to all sorts of world leaders, even Biden, coming out basically saying this was a free, fair election, you know, I welcome Lula, and, you know, we're going to be working with him together. So nobody knows what Bolsonaro is going to say at this point. And more to the point, he hasn't even made a statement. And so if he comes out and he's against the election, basically, I was cheated, it was fraud, he's going to be on somewhat politically isolated just because of the number of people who basically come out from his team that basically said, okay, we accept this, these results. The issue more so is the public, because three-fourths of the people who were voting for Bolsonaro thought the election was going to be ensconced with fraud. And being on the ground, that is nonsense. Nonsense. I didn't know this until I got here, but the Brazilian elections are compulsory, meaning it's not like the U.S., where people vote or they don't vote. Sometimes you vote without voting, meaning I don't like the guy, so you're not going to get my vote. That's not the case here. You are mandated by law to vote. And if you don't, there's a fine or you need to have a very good reason for why you didn't necessarily vote. And so when people are going to the voting machines, they're attached, like the person who, like they have voting cards. So the person and their vote is basically tallied. It's not, it's not, it's not a grab bag. It's not this kind of blank slate per se. So the notion of voting um, things nonsense. In fact, the TSE was fighting the Superior Court for um, the Electoral Superior Court was fighting misinformation to the point where they would release any and everything possible. So if a voting machine went down, they would release it. They would say where it went down, how many went down, where it was replaced, all of that stuff. They responded by basically putting as much information out for the public to see that they can use. Now, Bolsonaro, of course, turned around and said, well, that guy's biased. Well, guys trying to have a fair, free and fair election. Um, but all things been equal, Bolsonaro lost. Um, I'm waiting to see how the public responds to this. And I suppose, I mean, there are truckers that are basically blocking highway routes. I got some protests. So apparently people are burning tires in some places. But I, I'm very curious on what Bolsonaro is going to say. He may concede without conceding. I don't know if he's talking behind the scenes with his people trying to figure out what's the next course of action. Because after all, after saying it was fraud for a year, do you really come out and say, okay, Lula beat me fair and square? How does that look? So at this point, it is an unclarity on what's going on with Bolsonaro's camp. But Lula, of course, is celebrating, and he has all sorts of world leaders basically congratulating him on this win.
Yeah, totally. You raise a, a number of good points. I also thought it was noteworthy that our Bolsonaro allies were uh, uh, basically affirming the results. And to me, that 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 implied that uh, they were basically encouraging like a peaceful transition uh, of power uh, precisely because of what we've seen from Bolsonaro. And there was there was a lot of uh, there's been a lot of tension around that precisely because of what you note about uh, Bolsonaro uh, saying, you know, his refusal to accept um, or, you know, potentially refusing to accept uh, 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 the the election results, depending on how it came out. I forget how he worded exactly, but basically he strongly implied that if he didn't win, then he would contest it. And there was even a thought and he seemed to even at one point be threatening like a January 6th style, like uh, attack on some of the uh, government institutions in Brazil. I can't remember if it was the Supreme Court or what. I think the thing really basically ended up just being sort of a, a big Bolsonaro rally. But I mean, I think a lot of people were uh, sort of uh, wondering about whether or not uh, there was going to be political violence uh, following behind this. Um, I mean, it was good to see that that did not happen and uh, things like this. And so, I mean, I'm also sort of interested in uh, uh, how the Bolsonaro camp will respond to this or will they, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. Because I was wondering that too. I mean, political violence here seems to be I guess more normalized. Um, like there's all sorts of, not to mention this has been a contentious election. So what started off with multiple candidates, you had a middle ground. And at the point where those candidates went away, you just had these two running, it got contentious. I mean, Lula's camp was calling balls and arrow, a cannibal and a pedophile. Now the pedophile thing comes from a clip from balls and arrow where he said he saw a 14, 15 year old girl. And he was like, there was chemistry between us. So I asked her if I could follow her into her house. It was like, what? And so they started calling him a pedophile. Um, I don't know where the cannibal thing came from. But from standpoint of Bolsonaro, his camp has been calling Lula a communist, a Satanist, um, saying they basically want to force abortions and, and eliminate or close down all of the churches. So whereas Lula made this argument about economics and the poor and helping the poor, I mean, the guy pulled out, what, 20 million people out of poverty when he was in office. He left with an 80% approval rating. There's this clip where Obama is like, he says something where he says the most popular politician in the world. That's how famous and how popular Lula was. Now, of course, after Operation Car Wash, they basically put the guy in a cage. But and to your point, Bolsonaro at that point had the force or had the, let's say, the political will in order to threaten the court in a way where there was this thought or this threat specter of overthrowing the government if indeed Lula wasn't thrown in prison. In fact, it got to the point right here, an explosive new book by uh, Celeso Castro. Now, this was what I wrote a while ago when this was first taking place, published by FGV, former head of Brazil's armed forces. Uh, General Vila Boas confessed to a coup plot by military high command jail former Lula and preventing him from running in 2018. And he basically revealed how a group of 15 senior generals drafted a text threatening in tone, which was posted on social media by Boas and read out on air shortly after the anchor man William Boner doing Globo's uh, Journal National Flagship News Program. Now, this has occurred the night before the crucial Supreme Court, his corpus vote, which had it passed, would have allowed Lula to remain free. So he later admitted only once Bolsonaro was safely elected, that he had intentionally threatened the court, basically in order to get Lula put in prison. But as you know, that was found out to be just kind of plot Operation Car Wash, and Lula was basically let out and allowed to run again. What people were saying, though, was they didn't believe that he had that level, let's say, of backing or political will in order to do that. So this notion of him or the specter of the overthrow, 
and less relevant, especially with his allies coming out, basically, you know, saying, um, agreeing that Lula um, took it. Also, there were other parts that um, came up in this campaign that was pretty contentious. So we're right here. People back to Lula accuse Cannon pedophile, right? Supporters have called De Silva a gang leader, a communist, and a Satanist who wants to close the national churches. And, you know, there has been political balance on the ground. This week, uh, on claims of censorship from the right, authorities tried to arrest the right-wing congressman whom the Supreme Court had ordered not to speak publicly because they said he attacked Brazil's democratic institutions. He responded by shooting at the cops and throwing a grenade, injuring two officers. There was another one where a congresswoman chased a black guy down the street with a gun after an argument over Lula and the election, and et cetera, making a guy down on the ground. That video has been going all over the place. And so I got to be honest, we don't quite know. Like the level of intensity of this election was pretty heavy. And then I guess the electoral total shows how divided the country was on this particular election. And look, it's super weird. After a while, like I said, like Lula was making this argument about economics, basically saying um, people need to have the ability to be able to eat. I mean, even going so far, he made this argument. He said, let's get back to fixing the country and let's get back to eating and drinking a beer on the weekend barbecues. Bolsonaro goes crazy because he thinks he's the only one that can, but we want to eat at barbecues too. Like his argument was basically, we need to do something about people and the level of poverty that people are basically dealing with now. Bolsonaro more so wed himself to the church, whether it was evangelical or Christians, basically trying to make this argument. I mean, even within framing of his argument about Lula trying to close down churches or being a Satanist, he is definitely pivoting on this notion of religion and coding himself in the Bible. So it's a, it's a weird dichotomy between the two people and the way that they basically ran, which almost prevented this... Um, like, if you were on the left, you took it as Lula was taking out Naku. This is the correct thing to take place because Lula should have won the first time around. And those other people are basically fascist and racist, etc. Um, from Lula's, I mean, from the other camp, the other people are Satanists, communists, um, thieves. Lula's a crook and a criminal, etc. So there's not much leeway, you know, between these two sides in this case, which you could see basically in the way that the election went, for one thing, from the standpoint of the score. But also in the let's say, the violence that was taking place on the ground politically. So I have to be honest, I, I have no idea what's going to happen. If Bolsonaro comes up and basically says, I was cheated, this was fraud, I have no idea what happens on the ground. Yes, he'd be isolated on some level, but from the standpoint of the public, especially his supporters, every bit as much as Trump supporters believe them, his supporters may also go with it, whether they believe him in earnest or not. Yeah, I think the wildest accusation I saw from the right, it was aimed at another, a Workers' Party candidate, and, and they accused him of giving out gay kits to children. And, and I don't even know what that's supposed to mean, like these kits to exactly. kids at primary schools. I mean, it's just, it's just wild. And, you know, another thing that I've been thinking about, uh, Jamal, is, and this is something that we can't really know just yet, but um, we've been noting on the show that Lula da Silva, his, his victory would mean yet another progressive government in a, a Latin America region that is uh, very important to the United States. And uh, interestingly, uh, you know, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden congratulated Lula uh, pretty quickly. I don't know how much of that has to do with uh, Bolsonaro being close to Donald Trump. But uh, either way, what, what I'm mainly thinking about is um, 
you know, what the relationship between Washington and Brazil may look like now um, moving forward. I feel like things are fairly cool in terms of the relationship between the Biden and Bolsonaro government. And I mean, it's not like uh, Lula is um, sort of a, a staunch uh, anti-imperialist in the sense that we may think of uh, some other world leaders, but just sort of imagining how uh, Brazil plays into the, the regional calculus with Latin America and also what it's going to mean for Washington. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's an interesting question because you're right. Brazil is what, 200 million people, one of the basically the largest uh, population in Latin America or South America. And so it's a massive thing. I mean, BRICS, which is basically becoming the second economic order. Brazil was one of the countries that basically helped form it with Russia, China, South Africa. So it's a major economy in regards to, I mean, people always look at it as a third world country, but not so much. And you're right. Biden came out almost immediately. He says, I send my congratulations to Lula da Silva on his election to be next president of Brazil following right here, a free, fair, credible elections. I look forward to working together to continue cooperation between the two countries in the months and years ahead. What's wild about that is if you go back and look at some of the stuff that was taking place during Operation Car Wash, there was an element of U.S. working with the government in order to get rid of Lula. So it's fascinating now that Biden put this out early, almost as a repudiation of any notion of fraud claims. I agree with you. I think it's two things. Just like with Trump's relationship with MBS, anything that Trump touched became toxic. So MBS, from Biden's standpoint, became toxic. And yeah, of course, the deboning of Khashoggi, which is just bad, basically cutting out with a bone saw um, in an embassy. But besides that, from the standpoint of election fraud in the United States, where Donald Trump screamed it to the hilt, it would be super bizarre for Biden to say anything else other than the statement. Meaning, if Donald Trump is screaming election fraud, and you're saying that's misinformation, that's nonsense, et cetera, how would you look not congratulating Lula and making a point that this was a free, fair, and credible election? Meaning, by definition, you almost have to do it, just from a political standing. But also, I also think you're right. It has a lot to do with how close Bolsonaro was to Trump. I mean, even in the way that he acted. Think about the vaccine stuff. Or think about the election fraud, um, fraud stuff. All of those things are basically taken almost like a playbook from Trump and applied to his own campaign. So it seems that many of the other world leaders are backing him on this. Jeremy Corbyn was at his campaign headquarters, giving him accolades. Um, plenty of the other world leaders are basically gave congratulations, especially lefty governments in South America, basically saying congratulations, welcome my brother. I think even Maduro even put out their thing saying welcome to the fold. All of these left-wing governments now are in South America. And the question is, what does that mean in practice? I don't know what that means in practice. I mean, I I'd imagine that they're going to work together on some level, some kind of pink wave, considering they have, at the very least, similarity of ideologies. I would also imagine that right here. So back in 2020, during the height of COVID, there was, um, I think it was 2020, 2021, a report came out from Health and Human Services. And this is something that I don't think, don't think would have ever flew under Lula. I mean, 700,000 people died from COVID in Brazil. That's the second highest in the world, only short of the United States, which has more people. Right here, the document and Healthy Human Services document says right here, OGE used diplomatic relations in American regions to mitigate efforts by states such as Cuba, Venezuela, and Russia who are working to increase their influence in the region to the detriment of U.S. safety and security. OGA coordinated with other government agencies to strengthen diplomatic ties and offer technical and humanitarian assistance to dissuade countries in the region from accepting aid from these ill-intentioned states. Examples include the OGA's Health Attaché Office to persuade Brazil to reject the Russian COVID-19 vaccine. Think about that. They lost 700,000 people. And this document is basically bragging that, hey, 
we did such good work, like stop Brazil from getting the COVID vaccine from Russia. Isn't that insane? Now, Bolsonaro may do that. Lula would have never done that. And so it's like, it's policy stuff. It's a shift in, in the way that the person looks at the world and how that person looks at the poor, how that person looks at the rainforest. All of those things come into play with Lula now in office. And yeah, diplomatic relations is probably going to be one of those things, China, Russia, et cetera. So no, I am, I am super interested in what this looks like in practice. Now, to be fair, Lula doesn't necessarily have Congress like that. So he's not necessarily going to have the ability to do any and everything he wants. He's going to have to work with right wing and center parties. But if you remember when Lula was in power, he was criticized by the left for working with, let's say, center right or right-ish elements, bringing in certain people in his um, in his government that were on the right, like these kind of economic advisors and everything else. So we'll see. We'll see what he does. Well, thank you so much, Jamal, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the upcoming elections in Israel. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Richard Becker, the author of Palestine, Israel, and the U.S. Empire. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. And uh, Richard, this week, Israel will head to vote in its fifth election in four years. And uh, this race, of course, will include uh, none other than Benjamin Netanyahu, a 73 year old former prime minister uh, who spent more than uh, 30 years in uh, public life uh, in Israel. And uh, of course, there's uh, Yair uh, Lapid as well. And, you know, on the one hand, Richard, it seems like with every Israel uh, election that what's on the ballot are basically different flavors of uh, Zionism and apartheid. There, you know, basically is uh, rarely, really never, frankly, any deviation from uh, uh, that program. And then I feel like there are some uh, overarching things as well, like uh, with Benjamin Netanyahu, who's had to grapple with um, controversy from uh, corruption trials and things in the past. I don't know how much that may factor into this election, but just sort of hoping you could break down, you know, what's important to understand about this uh, upcoming election, uh, who's involved and what it means. Yeah, and um, it's in some ways it's a complicated question, a complicated answer, and in, in other ways it's not, uh, as you have indicated. Uh, and by the not, I mean that um, regardless of who wins the election tomorrow or what block, because they're, they're two rival blocks of different parties, multiple parties, and but whoever wins... Um, what will take place is what has continued to take place, whether it was a Netanyahu-led government or now, uh, at least for the last several months, it's been Yair Lapid and his party together with Gantz, uh, Benny Gantz, who was a former 
uh, chief of staff of the military, and uh, he's serving as defense minister. But what doesn't change is the uh, the repression that goes on day in and day out. Um, there's been at least uh, 182 Palestinians who have been killed by the Israeli military this year. So it's like, you know, it's it's more than uh, every two days It's uh, that, that this takes place. And then that doesn't count all the thousands of Palestinians who have been arrested, who have been beaten, uh, who have been held with administ- uh, under administrative detention, meaning that they're arrested based on secret evidence and they have no recourse. Uh, they can, that can be, that can be renewed as often as possible. In other words, the, the, this, um, extreme repression that goes on and, 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 and you have to include in that, um, regardless of who's in the government, these fascists, and I'm not using the word lightly, these fascist gangs of settlers who uh, almost all, relatively young men who roam the West Bank uh, with impunity, carrying out attacks on uh, on Palestinians, on anyone who supports Palestinians. And this just is what goes on day in and day out. And so people are thinking, well, what's going to happen now? Or some people will be thinking this or asking the question. There, and, and some will express a hope uh, from a liberal point of view that Lapid will win, the Lapid dance block will win. Uh, but with them in office, you see the same kind of repression going on it goes, uh, as has gone on when it's been Netanyahu heading up the government or anybody else going all the way back to uh, the beginning of the state of Israel in, in 1948. Yeah, Richard. And the fact that there is an an alliance of Arab-led parties that apparently opposes Netanyahu um, that could help Lapid uh, reach at least 60 seats. I mean, that 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 fact doesn't change the dynamic for, you know, true representation uh, in the Israeli government for Palestinian people, even though this alliance of Arab-led parties is active in the election. But what say do they have in actual legislating in, in the legislative process? Well, uh, in actuality, very little. I mean, they can win some concessions. And, and when we talk about those parties, those are parties that exist within the, uh, the 1948 borders of the state of Israel inside what's called the Green Line. Although I have to point out that when you go there, you don't see any signs that say, you know, you're entering Israel or leaving Israel. All of uh, there are no signs that differentiate between the West Bank and <clears throat> the 48 borders. But the, so the what they call the Arab-Israeli parties, and there are three of them that are significant <clears throat> and have a chance of, of winning uh, votes in the election and, and and winning seats in the in the Knesset, the parliament. Um, they are, they are um, uh, drawing support from about 2 million now Palestinians who live inside those 48 borders and who are very discriminated against. Uh, their cities, their towns are uh, receive very little in the way of, of support, and they can win a little bit more support in that way if they're in the parliament. But it doesn't fundamentally change anything. 
uh, and they, uh, you know, they, there's a huge controversy that goes on, that has gone on, because one of the parties, um, a leader and delegates um, has been part of the existing government, the one that, that's existed for in like in the last year. Um, but they, as I say, they, they don't really have any influence on the direction. So uh, the passage of laws like the Jewish nation state law uh, a few years ago, that law basically said, okay, Israel is a, is a country where only one people have a right to self-determination, despite the fact that 20% of the population is Palestinian and smaller percentages of other nationalities who have come there. Uh, but it's it defines itself. Israel defines itself as uh, a nation state of one people and one people only, uh, and meaning that the others are you know on, they're on the outside, no matter uh, no matter what the vote is in the election. Yeah, and you know, and just sort of looking at the political landscape um, in Israel in that internal way and how it's been developed. I mean. Uh, uh, how is it that things develop to this point in Israel politics? I mean, you have someone uh, like a Benjamin Netanyahu who uh, uh, basically, you know, seems <laughs> hellbent on uh, leading the country until uh, he's uh, no longer able to in some form or fashion. And, you know, uh, either way, in terms of how we look at the um proportions uh, in the Knesset in terms of people having majorities or whatever and what have you. I mean, I mean, what is it that sort of had things develop up into that point to where uh, uh, we get this kind of uh, what almost feels like, I don't know if you want to say a revolving door of leaders, but uh, um, I mean, like we're saying, Zionism is obviously uh, uh, the basis of all of this, but I'm really talking about the kind of internal ructions in uh, Israeli politics and where all that stems from. Well, Netanyahu has both a political interest and a personal interest in uh, winning this election and becoming the again becoming the prime minister. Uh, you know, he has his political ambitions. He's always been extremely, an extremely relentlessly ambitious character. He also has a personal interest now in that if he can stay, if he can constitute the government including the attorney general and the so-called justice minister and so forth, then that pretty much will relieve him of the danger of prosecution for corruption, which is, is very well known. You know, there's no question about it. But if he can constitute the government, then he can avoid that. So you have that going on. In the more long-term sense, you know, for in the early years of the state of Israel from 1948, um, when the state was formed at the expense of the Palestinians having driven out most of the Palestinian population by, by means of terror and violence, uh, the government that came in was, was uh, a Labor Party government. And uh, the Labor Party government, you know, proclaimed itself to have socialist ambitions and so forth. And, and that was the government up until the mid-1970s. So for the first 30 years of the existence of the state of Israel. And since that time, the whole political uh, uh, landscape has shifted, continually shifted to the right. And so, and, and in so doing, the Labor Party, it's questionable whether the Labor Party will have any delegates 
uh, in the uh, any and members of the uh, incoming parliament. They may or they may not. In the Israeli system, if you get 3.25% of the vote or more, so a relatively small percentage in the proportional uh, representation that they follow, uh, you get four members of the Knesset. Uh, and and if you are under 3.25%, you get zero. So th- this is part of the, the way the calculus that goes on uh, those who are, who are conducting the elections uh, you know, if, so if, if the smaller parties and the Labour Party is one of them now, uh, gets less than that, it'll be out of the government altogether. And it will be a clearly right-wing government uh, if, if, uh, and, and, and an extreme right-wing, with extreme right-wing, and I would say fascist elements in it, if the Netanyahu-led bloc wins. And these are people like um, uh, Ben Gavir and Smotrich, who are the heads of these parties that are really uh, followers of Meir Kahani, the late Meir Kahani, who is a, a fascist um, from uh, New York who moved to Israel, constituted a party that was actually outlawed in the, uh, in the late 1980s by the Israeli uh, Supreme Court because it was fascist. But now they're back, and they are predicted to become the third largest party in the in the Knesset and they will uh if they do win then we will have seen like uh the shift from the beginning the so-called labor socialist which was never really socialist but what the my point is that it's gone further and further and further to the right uh the the political landscape there and so that the even the parties that used to be considered on the left are hardly would hardly warrant any uh, such labeling. Yeah, and I do wonder, Richard, is there any more talk about uh, Netanyahu's corruption charges, uh, the crimes that he's committed? Has that all just gone away? I mean, are people uh, in Israel just that enamored with with Netanyahu, you know, who is obviously an, an evil, uh, truly an anti-Semite in the, in the true meaning of the word. Are they just enamored with him so much that they would forget all of the legal problems that he has had over the past uh, few years? Well, certainly uh, he, there is a, a very large base of supporters in the Israeli populace uh, who are supporters of Netanyahu. I mean, a majority in all the opinion polls, and I think this is really shows the shift that, uh, or, or, or the, maybe it's not even a shift, maybe it's just the reality and has been from the beginning. In this regard, in the opinion polls, large majorities of Jewish citizens of Israel uh, say they will not, would not want to live in the same apartment building as, uh, as Palestinians. They call them Arabs. Uh, but they're Palestinians, uh, and that um, they wouldn't want their children to go to the same schools, and they would refuse to have their, uh, and they don't want to even be able to ride in the same buses. Uh, and uh, I mean, it's it, it, there's a very strong current, and it's the dominant current today that's racist against the Palestinians, uh, and is open to the most extreme. Uh, means uh, to neutralize the Palestinians. And <clears throat> the leadership has always pursued the policy 
of making life so difficult in every respect, from jobs to, from you know, from jobs to education to uh, being able to travel, uh, in order to encourage the Palestinians to leave. And this is directed against the Palestinians living in the West Bank, who live under uh, the extreme uh, repression in Gaza and inside the state of Israel itself. And so the, the fascist elements, uh, like Smotr- led by Smotrich and Ben Gavir, who are going to constitute, uh, it looks like, uh, very likely that they will constitute an important block in the government and have important ministries as well under their control, uh, and and that they will continue and expand uh, the anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab uh, policies of the of the government, and it's their followers who are the ones who are roaming the West Bank, carrying out these vicious attacks and often murderous attacks with the support of the Israeli occupation forces, the military. Yeah. And, you know, usually, Richard, when it um, comes time for an election, you know, somewhere, I I typically ask, you know, what what are the ripple effects or the potential impacts for the region? But uh, I mean, you know, if we look at both the sort of current situation with the Yair Lapid, Benny Gantz uh, uh, leadership situation and what we know of Benjamin Netanyahu, certainly, I mean, it seems as though regardless of who wins this uh, election, that uh, Israel's role. Uh, in the region and, you know, as, of course, uh, directly connected to their relationship with Washington is also something that will remain fundamentally unchanged. But but what do you think? I think that's true. I think that, um, you know, um, President Biden has repeatedly stated in different settings, uh, I am a Zionist. And and he says, I'm not Jewish, but I'm a Zionist. Um, So I support the exclusivist, racist, um, vindictive, repressive policies of, of um, the Israeli government and its military and the armed bands who are, who are wandering around now. I mean, that's, that's what it really means to say, I, I am a Zionist. So you have, you have that um, Trump, of course, who may run again against uh, Biden or whoever in 2024, um, he did a great deal to uh, you know, moving the capital, recognizing the move of the capital to Jerusalem, uh, and uh, really a, a complete ignoring of um, any of the needs of the Palestinian people in favor of um, an even more extreme pro-Israel course. So you have, that's Trump, that's Biden, uh, that's anybody who I think is on the, on the horizon. Um, as far as the leadership in Washington, they will maintain this relationship with uh, the state of Israel, regardless of who wins the election tomorrow. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Richard, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, 
social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about conferences of the far right. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Daryl Lamont Jenkins, executive director of the One People's Project. Daryl, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me again. Absolutely. And uh, Daryl, uh, we're in a moment in the United States where the far right is uh, definitely on the march, both in the electoral arena and in the streets. And a part of how this element has been able to maintain themselves is through uh, the organizing of different conferences and and meetings where they bring together, you know, some of the main uh, thought leaders and, and activists in uh, uh, sort of the, the neo-fascist far right right movement uh, here in the U.S. And I know recently the American Renaissance Conference uh, uh, actually took place here. And I was hoping you could sort of break down just what this conference is, uh, who attended, and how these kinds of conferences factor in to uh, uh, what appears to be a strengthening far right here in the U.S. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that there's been a lot of conferences that we have seen over the course of the past year, which more or less raised an eyebrow with people, especially considering how further and further right a lot of these conservative conferences have become. But American Renaissance is pretty much the cherry on top of all of that, and it's going to be taking place at on November 18th and 20th at the Montgomery Bell Park Inn in um, outside outside Nashville in a town called Burns, Tennessee. Now, American Renaissance is a one is a one time newsletter that currently just exists as a website that's run by something called the New Century Foundation that was founded in 1990 by Jared Taylor. And its main focus is eugenics and the promotion of junk science that pretends to show how black people are genetically inferior to whites. Now, every year they hold these conferences where so-called intellectuals go. Richard Spencer, David Duke, and Patriot Front, who we saw last year getting arrested for trying to crash a pride fest in Idaho. As a matter of fact, I dealt with one of those arrestees at the American Renaissance Conference at at last year's conference. Now, it should be noted, by the way, that Michelle Malkin, who um, who was a columnist in the mainstream, that for some reason has been promoting white nationalism in the mainstream for about 30 years, was the first person to speak at that conference last year. First person of color. Now, the reason why we are concerned about this particular year is because it's going to feature former Iowa Representative Steve King, who was bounced out of Congress a couple of years ago for his racist views that he pretty much carried into Congress for about eight years. There's also going to be an Estonian politician by the name of Ruben Collip, who was known for his neo-Nazi ties. And there's also going to be a retired police officer who's calling himself Daniel Vineyard, which, by the way, is the name of one of the neo-Nazi characters in the movie American History X. His appearance is important because the theme of this year's conference is two years later, where do we stand? And it's in reference to the actions following the George Floyd murder. They are going to focus how they are going to go forward in the wake of all of that. And when you're talking about um, a guy such as Jared Taylor and who has written a diatribe years ago that almost went mainstream called The Color of Crime, which basically 
pins all crime on black people, you can pretty much have an idea of um, what they are going to try to navigate around whenever they have this conference. So it's real important for people to um, take notice of what's going on down in Tennessee. And we are definitely going to need a lot of help with people coming out or just speaking out against the conference itself. Yeah, real quick, just to give people an idea of just how virulent uh, these people are. I'm looking at the uh, American Conference Renaissance, excuse me, American Renaissance Conference website. And uh, as Daryl stated, the theme is two years later, where do we stand? This is just the opening paragraph on this. It says on May 25th, 2020, America plunged into collective madness. What should have been a routine arrest of a petty criminal in Minneapolis did not just set off the worst riots in U.S. history. It loosed upon the country an anti-white creed that had until then been preached only by crazed academics. And I mean, I'm looking at some of the the blogs and stuff they got on here. Uh, Blacks are the most racist people on the planet. Integration made me a believer in segregation. That one was written by Lance Peckerwood. Uh, um, How black crime maintains black political power. I mean, this, you know, just just to help folks understand who we're talking about here. But uh, Jackie, wanted to bring you in. Yeah, I think the aspect of this conference that is really, I don't know if it's shocking or if it's something that we can organize around, Daryl, is the fact that it's being held at a state park that's 35 miles outside of Nashville, Tennessee. And, and you know, the, the neo-Nazis and white nationalists and Klansmen and other right-wing uh, fascist and neo-fascist elements have uh, held events at this park before. But how do we deal with the fact that people's tax dollars are being used to provide a venue for this type of uh, a racist, uh, um, th- this, you know, display of racism. And as one uh, speaker self-describes herself as a proud Islamophobe, and that's Laura Loomer. What do we do with the fact that a state park is hosting this event, Daryl? Well, see, that's one of the things that was really important. When they used to hold these conferences in Washington, D.C., I mean, these conferences have been going on for 20 years. They've been holding them in Washington, D.C. until we started um, sounding the alarm against them and all the hotels started shutting their doors to them. Then they um, went to try to go to Charlotte, North Carolina, and the same thing happened. So their idea was to go to a publicly funded venue where they couldn't get thrown out as easy and... This park has basically made it such a safe space for them. Like you said, other um, white nationalist conferences have been held there and in other places, um, in other state parks in Tennessee. In fact, not only do are, is um, the state of Tennessee been particularly accommodating to them in the name of free speech, as they say, they've been pushing back on us. Those who are opposing such conferences in spectacular ways. I mean, there was actually um, an attempt to make it illegal to protest in parks um, back up. I would say about last year, early last year, they attempted to do this. Um, I do not know the status of that particular um, effort, but it was in response to um, Black Lives Matter. Remember the theme of this year's conference, Black Lives Matter protesting around state parks and things like that. And also, to us protesting this event. Bear in mind, 
the police fortify this park and do not allow anyone to really enjoy the end, which has a restaurant inside and such, really does not enjoy the pub up the public, regardless of if you are protesting or what have you, if you just taken in the park, you're not allowed to go into that building because the police have pretty much shut it down to everyone. This happened, started happening in 2018, 2017, the organizers of the United Right rally in Charlottesville network and plans for that day which was going to be two weeks after the conference, which Spencer even told the conference that they expected the rally to be traumatic for Charlottesville. After that conference, the police just basically locked it down to anyone who's not attending it. And that's one of the things that we really got to call out. I mean, even the signs that say when you come into the park, you shouldn't have any, you're not allowed to have firearms in this park. That's what they have during the conference. But we got to um, email that attendees were getting last year that basically said, and I quote, no firearms or other weapons are allowed in the conference facility. Attendees with permits valid in Tennessee may bring legal firearms inside the park, but they must be left properly stored in vehicle. So we're being told two different things on that front. So we really got to speak out and start calling out the um, state officials that are allowing this nonsense to happen. Yeah, and uh, I know there was another um, uh, event here recently, uh, Daryl, I believe it was in Pennsylvania, and uh, was hosted by Gavin McGinnis, uh, one of the founders of the Proud Boys, that I believe was successfully uh, shut down. What happened there? I attended that. I participated in the actions against it, and it was a very good action. i got to be honest with you. Um, Gavin McGinnis and another gentleman by the name of Alex Stein were supposed to be holding some sort of cop, doing some sort of comedy event. It was um, put together by a group called Uncensored America, which has ties to uh, ties to white supremacist groups. Um, in fact, um, there's a um, there was an old, group called the Bull Moose Party in Pennsylvania that was started out of Penn State, where members have gone on to do things such as um, start book publishing companies for white nationalists. But anyway, they tried, um, people were saying that they were concerned for the safety, they were telling the school not to ha- allow this because of the nature of the problem, because of what they are involved with. And sure enough, not only did, um, things were calm in the beginning. Things were fine. We were just content with just holding vigil outside the venue. But they allowed Alex Stein, the host of the event, to come out and provoke the crowd. And that's what got people amped up. All of a sudden, Proud Boys and other um, individuals that were participating in the conference decided that they were going to pepper spray um, pepper spray everyone. And that's when the uh, schools that were shutting down the event, everybody has to go home. But we said, we asked you to do this before all of this went down. So, yeah, it was it was kind of like a bittersweet victory that we shut down the event. But, I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, it was the um, organizers of the event that shut it down, considering their antics. But it was at the same time, and then I told you so moment, don't let this happen again. And, of course, UC Davis had the same thing go down the next day. Again, Proud Boys caused that event to shut down, the, um, the Turning Point USA event that they had in that campus. So at this point, it should be a teachable moment. If you're going to have these characters come to your account, come to your institutions, be it a college or a park, you can expect them to cause this kind of drama when they don't have to be allowed to do so. 
Yeah. And, you know, people who were uh, out in opposition of the event uh, were wondering why Penn State even sanctioned the event to begin with. And I think the same question can be asked of UC Davis. Why do college campuses continue to allow these folks to hold events on their campuses when they know full well what kind of people they are? They clearly have a track record of inciting violence. Why do college campuses continue to allow fascists a platform, Daryl? Well, they will tell you that it's all due to free speech in the name of free speech. But many a times they would allow, um, they would defend the free speech of those um, of those events while at the same time, as we've seen in Tennessee, um, stamp down on ours as we try to respond. And then you look at the fact that you have these um, university administrators and they're generally pretty conservative. So you have to wonder what kind of game are they playing? I remember what, um, they was able to, um, in Boston College years ago, when conservatives complained about the, um, the right of Ward Churchill, Ward Churchill um, speaking at that conference, speaking at that school, they managed to get him kicked off of campus. So why do the rules don't apply and those same rules apply to someone like a um, someone like a Gavin McInnes or an Alex Stein. In fact, Penn State did keep um, Richard Spencer off campus. Let's be fair; they did keep Richard Spencer off campus um, when he tried to go on a speaking tour to include Penn State. But that was only ten days or so after Charlottesville that he had um, applied the request, and he didn't really have any connection to the school. It's something that we're going to have to address going forward because they can't keep allowing dangerous people to come and terrorize their students. If they don't care, they have they might have to be replaced. And we're really just going to have to start pushing back on this. They most I mean, you can't keep using um, free speech as a as a reason why you're doing it. Free speech, as I've been trying to tell people, is not a suicide pact. You know. You don't have to threaten everybody's safety in the name of the free speech of those who want to um, who want to cre- create chaos. Yeah. And, you know, there's another level to this, of course, Daryl, because it's not just um, an issue of um, a bunch of reactionaries having a pep rally or whatever. I mean, some of these events have connections to uh, uh, U.S. officials and uh, or at least also people who are trying to take elected office. I believe you mentioned a little earlier uh, when we were talking about the American Renaissance Conference, uh, Steve King. I mean, this is someone who represented Iowa uh, for uh, 18 years from 2003 to 2021. And then, of course, there's uh, Laura Loomer, who's uh, running for the House of Representatives in Florida. And so this this raises, I think, another uh, uh, level of concern because there's sort of the the one level of the street violence that often comes from these groups. But these um, elements also very intentionally make connections with uh, far right officials to try to get their uh, uh, far right ideals into the mainstream and make them actually manifest to the public. And so I think this is why it's so important to sort of not only be aware of uh, some of these meetings, but also know about, uh, you know, who's organizing to fight back, just what that looks like and things like that. But really the point I'm making, Daryl, is that, you know, we're not talking about um, a bunch of fringe characters. We're talking about a political element that uh, has been and is making, as we speak, serious inroads into the mainstream, which is a very uh, dangerous uh, situation, I think. 
Yeah, and that's the point. And that's the point to this conference. And that's one of the reasons why we are asking people to come out. Incidentally, Laura Luman lost her primary, so she's not running anymore. But when you talk about things like that, remember back in 2006 when we had protests in D.C.? Remember, their whole, pro- their whole premise was trying to um, have these conferences in the Beltway to bring their ideas into the Beltway. And they even got shown on C-SPAN back then. But in 2006, um, we, they exposed a prosecutor from upstate New York um, that attended this conference. And he got fired when they found out that he was there. So when you look at that kind of caliber, when you look at the caliber of people that are going to these conferences, um, it's different than just seeing some yahoos on courthouse steps yelling and screaming or some knuckleheads trying to start some fights in the street. These are folks that are in your boardrooms. These are folks that are in your um, political governmental offices or in, in your academic halls. These are the things that are concerning everybody. And that's why we have been sound and the alarm for the past almost 10 years to do something about this conference and basically be aware of what is going on there. So um, even if you cannot come down there on April 19th, we're going to have a rally down on April 19th. I'm, I'm sorry, November 19th, pardon me. Um, even if um, even if you can't make it down, at least be aware of the conference start sounding the alarm against against the event Call up Tennessee, Tennessee state officials. Um, you can go to idavox.com and look on our sidebar. You can, you'll see something about the American Renaissance Conference and our actions. And, and um, hopefully we can um, make it harder, at the very least, for them to have the conference um, unabated, unopposed. And, um, and it will go a long way in the future, especially considering the political climate we have today. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Daryl, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, October 31st, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on this show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us here at By Any Means Necessary in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik 
Mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world, however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Bryce Green contributor to Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, also known as FAIR. Bryce, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me on. Absolutely. And Bryce, uh, you know, it was announced not long before we went live today that Elon Musk, uh, who, of course, recently purchased Twitter, has dissolved the tech company's board and made himself the quote unquote sole director of the company. And I'm going to read directly here from uh, this reporting from The Independent. It says, quote, all previous members of the board have had their authority removed, leaving only Mr. Musk behind, according to a new filing. The action was taken as part of Mr. Musk's $44 billion purchase of the company, according to that same SEC filing, which was made public on Monday. Now, uh, this also comes uh, not long after it was announced that Musk officially uh, bought Twitter, that uh, use of the N-word uh, rose about 500 uh, percent. Also, uh, no small amount of anti-LGBTQ uh, content coming up on the site as well, uh, according to the Network Contagion Research Institute, which uh, analyzes social media content. And, you know, of course, there's been a lot of uh, analysis and conversation around the situation, the the uh, notion rather of Elon Musk and Twitter, both before and after he actually bought it with uh, some feeling that uh, he's going to be some champion for free speech and things like that, with other thinking that is more than likely to open up the gate for more hate speech, uh, uh, as I've laid out. And uh, although already, uh, you know, we've seen a few people actually have their accounts returned. And so, I mean, <laughs> A wild uh, development, I think, to to say the very least. But just sort of generally curious uh, on your thoughts here. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've been seeing it too. I saw the uh, uh, there were people who were posting, you know, uh, tweets exclusively made up of slurs and the N word. Um, after Elon Musk started tweeting, he was like, uh, "What he said, the bird is free." Yeah, whatever <laughs> that means. Um, and that seems to be, you know, I don't know if that's indicative of how Twitter is going to be operated now. I know a lot of people were fired from the company, a lot of people who did uh, some of the content moderation and things like that. Uh, but it's hard to say, really. It's hard to say how this website will change with uh, with Elon's takeover uh, before we give it some time. Like all these, all these slurs and things like that. I mean, the, people like to pretend that stuff didn't happen on Twitter before. It, it did, and some accounts did it and weren't blocked. Um, in these cases, the accounts doing it, they were mostly uh, edgelords and memers and the very online people. And I don't think it really affected uh, the everyday experience of the average Twitter user. Uh, but you do have these questions of what is the correct way to uh, 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 to moderate the speech on a given platform. 
Um, but these issues, I think, are secondary to the bigger issue of uh, Elon Musk and his close ties to the national security state. Um, we've seen um, there was a report from The Intercept that I just got done reading before this uh, before the show um, about how these content moderation policies are being wielded by the Department of Homeland Security. Um, I'll just quote from the piece here. Uh, According to a draft copy of the, the DHS's Quadrennial Homeland Security Review, um, the DSH Capdown Report is outlining the department's strategy and priorities in the coming years. They plan to target inaccurate information on a wide range of topics, including the origin of COVID, uh, the, pan- uh, the origin of the COVID pandemic, the efficacy of vaccines, racial justice, and here are the interesting parts. Uh, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the nature of the U.S. support from Ukraine. So, and we also found out that uh, there's actually formalized processes uh, by which the Department of Homeland Security is able to talk to, you know, Twitter executives and Facebook executives to see what content that they want to uh, get throttled or taken down. Now, this is this is pretty serious. I mean, we all know Department of Homeland Security is one of uh, the Bush administration's contributing legacies to uh, the American security state. Um, and as their war of terror mandate winds down, uh, well, the Department of Homeland Security is focusing on internal security. And they're worried that, uh, uh, I think they say it explicitly, that this might undermine support for the U.S. government, that unregulated speech online might undermine support for the U.S. government. And specifically talking about the issue of uh, Afghanistan or Ukraine, well, these are issues of war and peace. And if you have the security state trying to moderate how the big tech platforms regulate their uh, regulate people talking about war and peace, well, then, I mean, we've had, uh, I mean, that's a troubling, troubling prospect. I mean, we, we all remember the disinformation governance board that was put up in the Department of Homeland Security not too long ago. Um, of course, they ended that, but that doesn't mean that they, they, they're stopping their goal of uh, getting these sorts of companies to be sympathetic, if not subservient, to how the U.S. national security state wants to moderate content, wants to shape narratives and shape opinions. And that, to me, is troubling, but no one's really talking about it so far. And Elon Musk, I mean, you know, he's a, a major contractor with a large, large aspects of the military, Starlink. I mean, uh, that's having close support with uh, uh, U.S. and NATO command in Ukraine. And, you know, he was even in talks with the, the State Department to help try and smuggle in Starlink things to Iran uh, in order to support their protests. So you have this guy who's highly connected to a national security state, and you have a national security state that's highly interested in moderating free speech on platforms, or at least uh, adjusting the nature of debate on these platforms. And so then you have this guy goes and buys one of the main major platforms uh, in American discourse. Uh, Now, that's a way to frame these issues in a way that I think could lead to some interesting investigations, interesting questions, but no one's really talking about that so far. Yeah, and I think that the question that that comes to my mind, Bryce, is 
you know, now with uh, Elon Musk owning Twitter and getting rid of the the board, uh, he's the sole owner, and all of this so-called free speech is being allowed on the platform. I, I guess the the left argument would be, well, if the labels that were placed on outlets like Sputnik, like, uh, you know, will Press TV's account be restored? Will all of the accounts of left uh, activists and journalists that were uh, banned um, or or suspended for spreading so-called disinformation and that were labeled, uh, you know, Russian state-sponsored media or whatever, Chinese state-sponsored media, do those labels go away? Do, does that, do those suspensions go away? And, and how do we on the left avoid, like, making Musk a hero if that does happen if all these accounts are renewed and you know all those labels go away how do we keep from making this guy a hero of the left in light of what you just told us about what what and who he really is <laughs> well i i think that if anyone on the left considers elon musk a hero for anything any reason uh well then i think you got to you got to check your friends you got to check your this one this man is a, a billionaire um, and he made his money, uh, especially in Tesla, by exploiting a tax carbon credit system. And he's benefited from billions of dollars in U.S. Uh, government subsidies. And he exploits his workers. He treats them like garbage. And he's just an overall very unpleasant person to experience uh, in the media and to experience on Twitter. Um, so if he does one good thing, then I hope... I hope I can trust the leftist media sphere and uh, my leftist friends not to lionize this guy. Uh, but you raise an interesting point. He has talked about, a, a, you know, the, the free speech mantra, uh, but and there is a policy of Twitter to uh, to label any media company that is funded by a government as a state affiliated media. Now, of course, they don't apply this policy evenly. Uh, they apply it, excuse me, very selectively. Um, for example, um, if you go to any account for, uh, I don't know, say, the Russian State Department uh, or the Iranian Foreign Ministry or the Iranian Department of Energy, whatever, all of these accounts have labels, say, Iran state-affiliated media, Russian state-affiliated media, or Russian state-affiliated accounts, excuse me. Um, and they do the same with the with the media that is funded by these governments. Um, so RT gets the label, Sputnik gets the label, Press TV, all these, all the Chinese uh, uh, outlets. But curiously left out of their policy is the United States government and their affiliated media. For example, Voice of America, last time I checked, does not have a U.S. state-affiliated media label. Uh, NPR, BBC. Uh, you know, uh, Radio Free Europe, Radio Free Asia, and all of these accounts that uh, that are coming out of Ukraine right now about the war, like the Kiev Independent, funded by the U.S. National Endowment for Democracy, uh, Hromansk, a very popular station there, funded by the National Endowment for Democracy. But none of these accounts bear that label. And so, again, talking, tying into the national security state and their imperatives and their narrative-shaping goals, well, I mean, this is a clear way in which these narratives are being shaped. If, and Twitter explicitly stated that they have a policy of throttling um, media 
uh, or throttling posts that share these state-affiliated media accounts. And so if that's not being done for U.S. affiliated media accounts, that has the effect of boosting them uh, implicitly. And so there's, I haven't seen anyone, uh, any reporters ask Elon Musk about this or ask uh, uh, Twitter to comment about their, their policy about that. But, I mean, that's one of the subtle ways, one of the many subtle ways in which uh, perceptions are managed and narratives are shaped and ideas are proliferated on this platform. Like people like to say Twitter's not real life, but I mean, it is real life. Uh, these are real people, real accounts, and people get real information from it, and they shape real opinions from it. And if you're able to manage that, if Twitter is, you know, working with the United States government and working with these uh, uh, the, the Department of Homeland Security to shape perceptions, well, then I think that deserves a lot more scrutiny. That is a, a hell of a lot more scrutiny. And even if Elon Musk uh, changes his policy, you know, you give him a, a pat on the back, tweet out a thumbs up emoji uh, at Elon Musk, and then go back to tragedy him for being one of the worst billionaires on the planet. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, th that's a frustrating thing about <clears throat> Twitter and social media, like it's real and it ain't, you know, because in my mind, social media is sort of a funhouse mirror reflection of reality that then uh, has real effects in real life. You know what I mean? And I'm glad you raised this issue of the uh, state affiliated media accounts on Twitter and just what that means, because it just continues to really blow my mind about Twitter's reasoning behind this, because if you go to any uh, any page, any account, I should say, that has that label and you click on it because that's a link, it actually takes you right to their help center where they explain uh, all of this. And so they have a section here called how state affiliated media accounts are defined. And it says, quote, state affiliated media is defined as outlets where the state exercises control over editorial content through financial resources, direct or indirect political pressures and or control over production and distribution. And see, this this is curious to me because by any means necessary, if you go to our Twitter page, we have a Russian uh, Russia state affiliated media label. Now, this show, of course, is on Radio Sputnik. That is a, a Russian state media platform. But the state which is to say the Russian government does not exercise any control over editorial content. Matter of fact, I'll let y'all in on a secret. Nobody exercises control over editorial content on this show, except for myself, Jackie Lukeman, and our producer, Josh Gomez. And uh, all three of us were born in the U.S., as it turns out. And so it's just, it's just like this totally ridiculous thing. And, of course, as you point out correctly, uh, uh, Bryce, all these other uh, U.S.-based state-affiliated media platforms don't have to wear that scarlet letter. And I appreciate the way you're sort of breaking this down in terms of getting beyond sort of uh, uh, the immediate sort of issue of Twitter and uh, sort of having a deeper analysis of Musk and his uh, 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 connections and all those sorts of things. And uh, definitely it's also relevant when we talk about the role that uh, social media plays in shaping perception, which in turn shapes 
consciousness. And I think we could say a similar thing for uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Meta. I mean, we know for a fact that uh, Facebook, before you know, it became Meta, they were engaging in these things that, uh, and they've admitted it, that they've uh, ran, ex- you know, like experiments to sort of see which posts, uh, how different posts affect the users emotionally and uh, uh, things like this. And so you have these tech companies that are ran by billionaires that collude with the state to uh, uh, subvert accounts that challenge the Washington consensus and amplify those that do, even by default, as you uh, uh, laid out, Bryce. And it makes for a very uh, 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 difficult, to say the very least, um, sort of terrain for alternative platforms and alternative journalists and analysts to really get a hearing. And we, I think we have to ask ourselves, why that is. I don't think it's any accident that uh, we see these things happening in these all out attacks on alternative platforms, whether they're state affiliated or not. And so, you know, the American people are told that uh, any any state affiliated media platform must be uh, the devil himself. Well, at the same time, uncritically uh, consuming any number, or any manner of these uh, mainstream platforms. And so when we talk about the uh, 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 mental terrain in uh, the U.S., and why people think what they think. I would argue it's a part of a very intentional effort to ensure that uh, basically that popular consciousness does not rebel against the status quo. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open to 0252-11320. That's 2 0252-11320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Bryce Green. Shout out to the By Any Means Necessary chat. Uh, Noah29 says, allowing the N-word on Twitter, right on brand with his family's stolen wealth, built with the blood, sweat, and tears of Africans. That, that's exactly right. That's why I call Elon Musk's everybody's favorite uh, apartheid American. But switching gears a, a little bit here, Bryce, um, the British Navy uh, uh, rejected accusations from the Russian government that the British Navy had a role in uh, the recent sabotage of the Nord Stream pipeline. Uh, according to the Russian Defense Ministry in a uh, recently released uh, statement, it said, quote, according to available information, representatives of the British Navy took part in the planning, provision and implementation of a terrorist attack in the Baltic Sea on September 26th. This year, blowing up the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 gas pipelines, Uh, the UK Defense Ministry uh, responded, saying, quote, to detract from their disastrous handling of the illegal invasion of Ukraine. The Russian Ministry of Defense is resorting to peddling false claims of an epic scale. This invented story says more about arguments going on inside the Russian government than it does about the West. 
which is a curious notion. But, uh, you know, in reading this, um, Bryce, I actually thought about a piece that you published at FAIR.org a little earlier this month entitled uh, U.S. Media's Intellectual No-Fly Zone on U.S. Culpability in Nord Stream Attack. And I think that there's a direct connection to this and what we were just mentioning about the uh, 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 how consciousness is basically warped in this country and frankly, uh, how propaganda works, uh, both on uh, corporate media platforms and on uh, social media, which I reckon are also uh, uh, corporate owned. And so, you know, I'm just wondering what you think about this, uh, uh, Bryce. I mean, obviously, the uh, war in Ukraine, unfortunately, seems like it continues to escalate. And this Nord Stream attack uh, definitely was sort of part and parcel of this broader piece. And just curious how you're sort of uh, analyzing all of it at this point. Right. Um, uh, you're right about this this escalation. And it's, you know, worrying me every single day. But on this question of the Russian accusations, you know, Russia made accusations. And if and when they present evidence, we can uh, address it. And we can see how the evidence goes. But, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of the times on both sides, they'll make accusations and then uh, just present their own intelligence estimates, which for the rest of us trying to piece together what's actually going on is really of no help. Um, and so if the U.K., U.K., of course, of course, they're denying it. Um, I, I'd be very surprising if they didn't. But. If we go back to the actual circumstances of the attack, and we look at the, uh, the the last decade of who wanted this pipeline and why, and who didn't want it and why, well, then uh, all of that history supports the Russian accusation that the UK or the West writ large were involved to some degree in uh, this attack. Um, and, and I'll go over it for a little bit. I mean. Uh, ever since the Obama administration, when this project got off the ground, uh, the the U.S. government has done everything it can to stop this pipeline from going out, uh, to stop this pipeline from uh, uh, from being completed. It was a German project uh, and a Russian project, but the U.S. said that no, this harms our interests. Why does it harm the U.S. interests? Well, if you if Germany has closer integration with Russia and can supply a lot of natural gas from Russia, well, that cuts out U.S. markets. That cuts out the U.S. corporations. And I, I'm sure I don't need to explain to our listeners the, the critical role that U.S. corporate interests have in shaping our foreign policy. Uh, in fact, I mean, that's what's at the root of this entire war. Um, so you have the U.S. viciously opposing the pipeline as soon as the war uh, before the war starts, the, the U.S. is saying, well, if this war starts, if Russia invades, we will make sure that this pipeline does not get completed or does not get turned on. Um, and in fact, Joe Biden, he was asked by a German reporter or by a reporter uh, about that, uh, that this is a German project. How are you going to stop it? Well, his response was, uh, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. Um, and then right after the explosion, uh, uh, our Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, he called the uh, he called the attack a strategic opportunity, uh, a strategic opportunity to uh, you know sever Germany from Russia, to isolate Russia. I mean, it's written all over their faces. 
that this was uh, something that uh, was beneficial to U.S. planners, that they wanted this to happen. And it's extremely likely that they caused it to happen, uh, given that alone. And then, of course, you have, uh, you know, the the evidence of the radar uh, or of the, uh, the the flight pattern over, or, I mean, sorry, the choppers, the helicopters flying over the area around the same time of the explosion. Um, and and there's, there's other uh, small indications showing that you have the uh, the Polish member of the European Parliament publicly thanking the U.S. for this. Um, and we all know that the U.S. and the U.K., they are, you know, on the same side of Western capital, of Western imperialism, of Western corporations. And so very often their foreign policies are one and the same. Um, but I do, so, yeah, I, the Russian accusations, I think they are credible, but they have not provided any evidence, at least to my knowledge. And when they do, it can be evaluated. And the U.K. denial is not credible, and it carries no information because it's what we would have expected them to do, regardless of whether or not they're guilty. But I want to do a little bit of debunking here. Um, there is this claim going around the Internet, uh, going around some, some popular Twitter accounts. I've heard some popular uh, media figures repeat this, so it's worth, uh, it's worth addressing. Um, there was a report that uh, the U.K. Prime Minister, Liz Truss, uh, former <laughs> former minister, had her uh, phone hacked. Um, and some people were spreading a rumor that there was a text between Liz Truss and Tony Blinken at the time of the Nord Stream attack that said, quote, it's done. Now, I saw that, and I was looking, looking for a source around it. Looking for a source. The only source I can come up with is a popular Twitter account called Ken.com. There is no other. There's no other link to it, although it has been repeated. So I just wanted, you know, if you've heard that, um, there is no source to it. If there is a source, you know, send it to me. That's pretty damning if it did happen. But uh, I see no evidence that it did happen. And people are going to rumor rumor monger and spread garbage information. That's a shame. It truly is. Because it's important to talk seriously about these issues. It's important to uh, address the evidence as it comes in and to seriously evaluate it with, uh, you know, logic and reason. But it's difficult to do that if people are spreading misinformation. So I just thought I'd put that out there. Yeah, that's definitely important to debunk, you know, because this is a messed up situation all by itself. And it's clear that all indications are that the West, whether it's the U.S. or the U.K., definitely had something to do with this, which I think, you know, answers the question that people have raised about. And then, of course, this came from the very forces that have been wanting the Nord Stream pipe, pipeline to, to, to not be a thing anymore. The, the idea that Russia blew up their own pipeline. I, I mean, when I first heard that, Bryce, I kind of thought, okay, these, none of these people are serious. They don't pay any attention to anything. But I mean, how do you think it is so easy for people to repeat such a claim like that, understanding that really, what would Russia have to gain? But then I think that reflects how badly misinformed we are just in general about U.S. and Western foreign policy and the very nature of this war in Ukraine in the first place. No, you're exactly right. Like People have been led to believe that this war is one of good and evil, right? That Putin is the great evil. Zelensky uh, and Ukraine are the innocent victims. 
and the U.S. is the hero saving the damsel in distress. I mean, that's been the dominant narrative on almost all of corporate media in America. And if you have, you know, Putin as a, a new Hitler, uh, an ontologically evil villain, well, then you can even make the you can make the accusation that he'll bomb himself just to make a point. I mean, you should have seen Western media speculate about this. I mean, even the New York Times and Washington Post, they were like, well, there is no readily available reason why Russia would do this. But, you know, he could just be sending a message to the West that, you know, their infrastructure isn't safe, that they better watch out before uh, things get serious. Like, it's all just kid stuff. I mean, it's all just it, it's like a cartoon Marvel movie narrative about an evil dictator who's willing to do anything for any reason because he's crazy and he's evil. Like it's, if it wasn't so dangerous, uh, if it wasn't so dangerous to the stability of the world, it would be uh, pure comedy. (laughs) I I mean, the the idea that um, Russia would blow up his own pipeline uh, is absurd on its face. But then you combine the fact that they were negotiating with the Germans at the time to reopen the pipeline. And the pipeline, uh, you know, the, the flow of natural gas is a key point of leverage between Russia and its adversaries in the West. You know, Germans need to heat themselves during the winter. Uh, that, that's just a fact. That's going to happen regardless of the war. That's going to happen regardless of uh, what Putin does or doesn't do. And this natural gas is a way for them to do it. So it's a pressure point uh, for the Russians to influence the German thought process, the German uh, uh, calculus in their in their actions in Ukraine, blowing the pipeline up, well, that removes that entire leverage from the equation. Now, why would they do that to themselves? It doesn't benefit them at all. I mean, <laughs> it really is laughable. It is. And there's a reason why people in this country are so eager to believe it. This whole notion <clears throat> of the war being about good versus evil, like some kind of uh, uh, action movie or something, and uh, uh, the idea that they will blow up their own pipeline, even that, even though that makes absolutely no sense. The only reason so many uh, Americans would believe that narrative is because long before uh, 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 February 24th, long before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Vladimir Putin had already been thoroughly demonized in the minds of the American people. And it's like we get all these articles and analyses about Putin that are some version of get into the mind of a madman. Like it predisposes this kind of uh, Hitlerian uh, lunacy on uh, to the individual of Vladimir Putin, just to sort of echo um, a part of what you were saying, Bryce. And, you know, uh, actually, uh, I think it was yesterday, uh, one of our colleagues here at Sputnik, Wyatt Reed, he posted on Twitter um, a number of headlines where we see this same uh, sort of narrative uh, used. I'm looking at a piece from uh, November 1st, 1990 from a, from the Associated Press. Bush says Saddam even worse than Hitler. Next one is Gaddafi, the new Hitler. That's from July 2011. Uh, here's another one. I don't see a date here, but it says Sean Spicer on Assad regime. Even Hitler didn't use chemical weapons. And I mean... Whatever. Uh, is Putin the new Hitler? That's on Voice of America from March of this year. And so, number one, I, I really, first of all, I, I hate I hate it when the corporate press, I hate it when people want to compare every bad thing 
to the actual Holocaust and every bad person to Adolf Hitler. I mean, that is just absurd. I mean, I mean, to me, it, it undermines the gravity of one of the greatest crimes against humanity in recorded history. Right. But I think it also shows a um, a consistent tactic from the U.S. uh, corporate media, which takes excuse from the government, of course, about just demonizing uh, uh, the enemy of the day as heavily as possible to justify uh, whatever it is the U.S. intends to do, usually some kind of, you know, brutal military invasion or intervention. And it's an easy thing to understand, because if you make a leader, a government or a country uh, seem like the ultimate evil, well, that makes them unsympathetic in the minds of the American people. And so if you blow the country off the face of the earth, not only will the American people not complain, they'll jump up and down and cheer and wave their flags, chanting USA, USA. This is the kind of sickness that is bred in us by uh, this incessant imperialist propaganda. And so we're made to believe that the enemies of the U.S. government are also our enemies. And to say this is not to suggest that, you know, all these different leaders are sweet angel babies that never did nothing wrong, but it is to say that the U.S. without question has its own particular interest when it frames things in this way. And to say the very least, Bryce, uh, uh, these interests are uh, almost always less than noble. Uh, no, exactly. Well, each time you get the same, you get the same exact playbook. Uh, and, you know, like, like Wide Reed tweeted out, like, Gaddafi, Hitler, Assad, Hitler, Putin, Hitler. Like, it's, Every single time. And that's because Americans don't really have another frame of reference for uh, a great crime, right? And, and all these people aren't doing things on par with the Holocaust. Uh, but if there any, if any country uh, has earned the title of villain of the 20th and 21st century after Hitler, it's the United States. I mean, there has been nothing that Russia— or Putin, uh, or Assad, or Gaddafi, nothing that they have ever done compares to just, you know, a few years of United States history of foreign policy. Like, take any any couple years that you want. You want to, like, 2011, destruction of Libya. Nothing Putin has ever done compares to destroying an entire country, not even what he's doing in Ukraine, uh, which, you know— the fact that he's using such a soft touch in Ukraine, according to the Washington Post, has baffled U.S. planners. But there's nothing even remotely like that. Uh, what the U.S. did to Vietnam, there's nothing even like that. What, what the U.S. did to Afghanistan, Syria, nothing, nothing even compares. But because the American education system and the American media system, by extension, are so... Uh, they, they ignore these crimes of the U.S. They downplay them, or they even couch them as either accidents or even noble. Uh, that's because uh, that's that allows them to, you know, only point to Hitler as a frame of reference for someone doing something bad on the world stage. But if we talk these things, if we were taught uh, uh, about all the various overthrow operations that have been done by the military and the Central Intelligence Agency. Well, then maybe we'd be a lot more humble when we try and say that, you know, Assad is Hitler. 
because, you know, he's putting down a rebellion or that Putin is Hitler because he invaded, uh, you know, one sixteenth of the amount of countries that the United States has invaded. I mean, it's just, uh, again, if it weren't so damn terrible, it would be a pure comedy. And you know what? Uh, Prester John, too, in the chat, raises a great point. He says that actually Biden is a garden variety American fascist. Little need to invoke Hitler. The U.S. was far more effective as a fascist nation than that startup Nazi Germany. And I I actually agree with that. I think, you know, the the utility of U.S. leaders and British leaders and other allies of the U.S., their, their need to compare leaders of countries that they don't like to Hitler serves them. And it does something that I think is very important. It serves to obscure the fascism that actually exists in their own government. Just the the fact that the country, the government of the country that is comparing all these other leaders to Hitler, they're actually the more effective evil. They're actually the more effective fascists who have been really committing countless deaths uh, you know, attributed to capitalism and, and imperialism all around the world. And I'm wondering how you think about that. The fact that Biden, there's no need to compare him to Hitler, Bryce, because he's just the more effective fascist, which is what the U.S. has always been. Uh, well, there's one thing to keep in mind is that Hitler wouldn't have been able to operate without the U.S. Like Hitler would not have been able to uh, Hitler wouldn't have even had these ideas about racial purity without some of the ideas pro- uh, uh, put out by, you know, Western thinkers. Um, and there's, there's a, whole, a lot of facets to this. Um, you know, Hitler adopted his ideas of racial segregation and uh, racial supremacy and uh, from what people in the U.S. were doing. And he, in fact, admired the way the United States was able to cleanse an entire nation of a race almost entire. Uh, Hitler admired the way we, uh, we genocided the natives. I mean, this was, that's the far bigger than the Holocaust. I mean, that's, that's a hundred million people wiped off the face of the earth. And then you have uh, the Western financiers who backed Hitler um, even after he began his anti-Semitic tirades and after the pogroms and uh, this the attacks on minorities in Germany happening, and even uh, the, one of the major Western corporations, IBM, helped do the punch cards that helped uh, tabulate all of these uh, racial genocide markers. They were using them in the concentration camps. This is IBM, the American computer company, and this was done with the sanction of the United States government. Which, of course, as we you know keep saying, the corporations control. And then you have after the Third Reich, you know, there's a, 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 a saying that you know the, the the Third Reich didn't lose the war; they just migrated to the United States. You have Operation Paperclip taking all these Nazi scientists and you know helping them feed America's war machine and America's space program in their race against the Soviets. And then you have uh, Operation Sunrise, in which several German generals who were very close to the CIA at the time, they defected, and they made their own separate piece. And in fact, uh, one of the early CIA directors, Alan Dulles, personally uh, directed an operation to get one of these guys out of Italy. 
Um, and, uh, and so many of these German intelligence officers in the Eastern Front, they ended up being integrated into NATO. Um, Reinhard Gellin, who was uh, one of Hitler's chief intelligence officers, became the head of the Western German intelligence. So the Third Reich, I mean, and all the fascist ideals that guided it, uh, they were translated into a, a, a lighter version in the United States. And uh, that that history has been completely erased in, in American schools and in the American media. I mean, because what did we continue to do after that? What did we use these intelligence, this intelligence apparatus for? What did we use NATO for? Uh, and, you know, don't even get me started on the, on the Gladio aspect of it, which you got another hour? <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, this whole idea that the U.S. Uh, is a bulwark against authoritarianism is ridiculous. I mean, Joe Biden and his predecessors are some of the worst war criminals in history. I mean, Joe Biden led the charge to get us into Iraq. That alone should disqualify him from saying anything about democracy, from criticizing anyone but himself. Maybe he can criticize George Bush, but he won't do that. Not at all, because George Bush has been uh, thoroughly rehabilitated by liberals now. Now, there's a couple of books that I actually just wanted to uh, recommend to our listeners in case they want to look more into what we're discussing here. Um, there's NATO's Secret Armies, Operation Gladio and Terrorism in Western Europe. That's by uh, Danielle Ganser. There's a Operation Paperclip, the secret intelligence program that brought Nazi scientists to America. That's by Annie Jacobson. And shout out to Ricky Ryan in the By Any Means Necessary chat, who said uh, Hitler learned from the U.S. That's absolutely true. And to that end, you can check out Hitler's American model, the United States and the making of Nazi race law. But we're going to move to another quick break. On that note here, on by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 0252-11320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Bryce Green is here as we continue. And, <clears throat> excuse me, Bryce, quite naturally, uh, we've been talking this hour about uh, Russia and the war in Ukraine and things like that. But I'm also wondering what you make of what appears to be a kind of ramping up of tensions on the part of Washington towards China, which is the other major piece of the new Cold War. Uh, some may argue that China is really the main uh, uh, sort of issue within this new Cold War reality that we're in. And as we often say on the show, uh, the U.S. seems intent on uh, turning this Cold War into a hot war. And, uh, you know, particularly in terms of how the U.S. Uh, is seemingly trying to use uh, Taiwan to uh, needle China, similar to how they used 
uh, Ukraine towards Russia. And, you know, both the very dangerous sorts of uh, paths to travel down as they both could very well end up in uh, open nuclear conflict, something that would have serious uh, consequences for uh, uh, humanity as we know it. And I just feel like if we take a step back and look at U.S. foreign policy, if we look at U.S. imperialism, which is uh, deeper than simply a, a slate of policies itself, and just to see how fundamentally, like, What's the word I'm looking for? I'm not sure how else to really describe it uh, other than, you know, genocidal. I don't know if there's anything uh, sort of grander than that in terms of the scale of the potential consequences of these moves. And those are just two. You know what I mean? Like, But when you have this uh, massive network bases and installations in these uh, lackey states like in Western Europe and uh, Australia and other countries that we can can name. And then on top of that, uh, a compliant uh, corporate press apparatus, which then makes for a, a compliant populace. It's uh, it's it's a pretty precarious situation that we find ourselves in. Now, speaking for myself, I don't think we're in a hopeless moment. I think that there is an opportunity for uh, these things to be turned around, although I tend to think that will only happen as the result of uh, a mass uh, independent movement. But particularly as a journalist and as a journalist that uh, uh, publishes a lot with alternative uh, platforms, Bryce, and uh, particularly in seeing how these mainstream uh, 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 platforms handle these things. I mean, how are you sort of uh, uh, viewing a, a lot of these developments? And I was wondering this, like I say, specifically as a, a, a journalist who tries to cover these things in, in as an honest and balanced way as one can. Yeah, right. Well, well zooming out, you look at what, uh, what animates American foreign policy, and it's corporate interests. It's corporate hegemony in the U.S.-dominated economic financial system. Uh, China and its rise over the last 20 years, or, yeah, the last 20 years, has really been a threat to the United States. You know, there was a time when we thought that China's liberalization policies would empower the Chinese capitalist class to dominate their country the same way our class dominates ours. And so uh, the plan was to, you know, have our corporate you know, corporatocracy, integrate with their corporatocracy, and then bring China into the system where, you know, all the Chinese people are subjugated under the same system that we're all subjugated under. Uh, but that didn't work out. Uh, the Chinese communist model, uh, they decided to rein in the power of corporations and use their economic growth to distribute wealth to millions of people. They raised over the last, you know, few decades, uh, something like 850 to 900 million people out of poverty. And in fact, if you look at all these statistics about how, uh, you know, we've eliminated a lot of poverty over the last, you know, 50 years, well, if you take China out of the equation, we really increase the number of people in poverty. Uh, like, it's, and that's a, a real threat to the United States system because the Chinese, they don't believe in subjugating themselves to, you know, the IMF, the World Bank, Wall Street, and all of the other power centers that dominate American policy. And so when China starts talking about expanding their influence, you know, to their neighbors, you know, and especially to Africa, well, the U.S. gets a little uncomfortable. 
they're like, this is our world. We dominate everything. What right does China have to, to try and bring uh, you know, their model around the world? And so that's a threat. Ever since uh, the Obama administration, uh, the U.S. has had a policy, what's called the pivot to Asia. You know, instead of uh, hunting terrorists and blowing up weddings in the Middle East, instead we were going to focus on building up our defenses against a rising China. <laughs> it's, it's pretty ridiculous, right? Because they're acting like China is a threat to us. Meanwhile, if you look at a map of all the U.S. military bases, they surround China and they surround Russia. Uh, and so Taiwan, uh, which is dominated by interests that are dissimilar to U.S. capitalist interests, uh, that's been used as a lever, so to speak, to try and poke at China, to try and get it to extend itself in a way that the U.S. could react to and then frame itself as the protectors, the same way they did with Ukraine and Russia. Now, right before the Ukraine war, something happened that really probably uh, shivers down a lot of spines in Washington. The Russians and Chinese came out with a joint statement of cooperation, and they announced their plans to uh, reshape the power balance on, uh, on the planet, away from the United States, from the unipolar world, and towards a multipolar world, wherein, uh, you know, rule of law actually means something, wherein the obligations uh, uh, to adhere to the UN Charter are taken seriously, where principles of non-interference in internal affairs are adhered to, right? Uh, so this is an entirely new, uh, new kind of order compared to the old rules-based order in which the United States made the rules and everyone else had to obey. Uh, and so that is a serious threat uh, to U.S. hegemony. There is a path towards coexistence. The U.S. could be saying, okay, how can we all cooperate? But the logics of American capitalism dictate that we have to confront these powers. China's very existence as an alternative model to development is a threat to U.S. power. And so now the corporate class, the, uh, the opinion-making and the decision-making class of America, they're putting out articles. I think it was in like The Economist. They're, well, they're everywhere. Can we take on Russia and China at the same time? Uh, is Biden ready to go all in on China and all in on Russia? Like, it's, it's crazy. And these are both conflicts that could blow us all sky high. These could go nuclear. China's a nuclear power. They have interests. Russia's a nuclear power. They have interests. But the U.S. seems to be poking the tiger and poking the bear because, like I said, of these internal logics of capitalism. And, you know, with what you just said, Bryce, I do wonder how much of this aggression toward uh, the U.S. aggression toward Russia and China is more about keeping the rest of the world in line as we're seeing countries enter into relationships with Russia and China. The BRICS uh, uh, formation is growing. Um, other countries are making all kinds of trade deals and even mutually uh, beneficial uh, uh, military support deals with China and Russia. Of course, you know, anti-communism has, I, I mean, we always say that the United States probably hates communists more than they hate black people. But 
I, I aside from using, you know, the anti-communism as as an excuse to always be aggressive toward China and Russia, I really get the feeling like the the unending aggression toward these two countries is really about making them an example for the rest of the world to do exactly as you point out, Bryce, to keep the U.S. in power and to warn the rest of the world, if you continue to deal with these folks, this will be you, you will be next. But I also feel like, Bryce, that it's not going to work this time. What are, what, are your, what are your thoughts about that? Ooh, will it work this time? No, that's a difficult, <laughs> difficult to say. I mean, there are so many ways in which this could go wrong, but I think your fundamental analysis is correct, that this is a way to show the rest of the world that uh, the U.S. is still in charge, you know, daddy's still home. After the U.S. withdrawal of Afghanistan, there were a lot of think pieces about how, how will the U.S. ever reestablish its credibility in the world. Um, well, you know, that's code for dominance, right? That's code for how much influence does the U.S. have abroad. Uh, and, you know, this uh, this Ukraine war, people were writing at the start of it, uh, you know, is this war going to reestablish U.S.'s credibility? <laughs> Which is ridiculous. And they're saying the exact same thing about Taiwan. And it's a way to reinforce this myth that America is a benevolent actor, that it's trying to do what's best for the world. But uh, in reality, it's just a way to, that's just, you know, propaganda for children. The U.S. doesn't care about the people, the individuals, the human beings in Ukraine, or the, the people and the individuals in Taiwan. They care about their imperial project. And, you know, uh, we, we see this in Africa, right? Every time there's a leader who's closer to Africa, um, they either get you know, demonized or the U.S. comes in and tries to say that, oh, well, China's just putting these, plate, these people under debt peonage. These dumb Africans don't know what they're doing. Uh, and it's 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 a way to it's a way to sell their policy both to the audience abroad and especially most importantly the audience at home. Like I, I firmly believe that most of these uh, these liberals in their uh, in their you know Ukraine flag hanging from their from their homes and their marches uh, trying to get the U.S. to fund Ukraine. I firmly believe that they genuinely think that they're doing the right thing, that this is the correct thing to do, that the uh, that America can be used as a force for good. But, you know, that, that's only able to exist in people's minds if all of the history that, you know, we've been talking about, if all that is ignored, if all of that's put aside. Uh, and so this, this entire project, it seems to be, is, is a way of, uh, or at least the propaganda side and the, the, uh, the domestic propaganda side is a way to legitimize all of it is a way to say that the U.S. is coming here to help and that you can uh, support in its noble mission. Yeah, definitely. And the funny thing about this notion of the U.S. Uh, being some great benevolent force is because of this very propaganda that we're discussing, the only people that believes that are Americans. I mean, I, mean, I would argue that most of the rest of people on uh, planet Earth who uh, suffer the brunt of imperialism more directly uh, uh, likely think of it quite differently. But this is precisely why it's necessary to uh, have this uh, propaganda machine operating in the way that it does 
for the interest of capital. And as such, it's important that we continue to not only uh, have alternative platforms, but to really fight uh, against uh, the machinations of these systems. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Bryce Green, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.